Welcome to the podcast, Three Things That Matter. My name is Anne Blake, and in each episode, I interview a different guest. They are asked to bring three things that matter to them. These might vary from books and plants to places and occasions. These three things provide the jumping off point for discussion of the extraordinary in the everyday. Three Things That Matter is a Limerick Post podcast and is released every second Wednesday. In episode five of the first series, I speak to Rory McKiernan, an award-winning social innovator, campaigner, best-selling author and speaker. In 2012, he was appointed to the Council of State by President Michael D. Higgins, where he served a seven-year term. He is the founder of the spunout.ie national youth website and founding board member of the Uplift campaign organisation and numerous other campaigns and social change initiatives. Rory is the host of the chart-topping Love and Courage podcast and the Creative Souls of Clare podcast. His book, Hitching for Hope, A Journey into the Heart and Soul of Ireland, is an Irish Times number one bestseller. Rory is originally from Cootill, County Cavan, and now lives on the west coast of Clare with his wife, Susan Quirk, who is a musician and meditation teacher. What is your first thing that matters to you? Oh, my first thing that um, came to me instinctively, intuitively, I, I suppose with, with all of these questions, you can start to immediately try to get very clever and, oh, I need to come up with the best thing ever. That's going to be the most interesting thing ever. But the, the actual thing that came to me instinctively was um, my heart. Oh, yeah. And but, you know, also just one's heart in terms of. Um, yeah, it, it's obviously, you know, an organ, it's part of our biology, it's the thing that beats, gets the blood going, it's, it keeps us alive. Um, but yet it also evokes all of these other um, senses as to who we are as humans and without a relationship to those senses what are we other than beating flesh and muscle and blood and bones um, which are all very important Mm -hmm. Um, but I feel that to be connected with one's heart on a deep level is so important to know who you are know what you're about to connect with other people and their hearts and to try as best as one can to cultivate a life and hopefully therefore a society that is a little bit more heart based. Yeah, that's, um, that's, it's, it's lovely. I suppose that the literal, the literal organ that keeps us alive, but also I think that sense of your heart being knowing who you are, um, that's that's a lovely take on it, really. Yeah, um, I I mean, classically, people may prefer to approach that from a, a psychological perspective mm. and think about knowing one's mind and knowing oneself. And and like you can come at this in a number of different directions, and arguably they can become metaphors then, but. Um, yeah, I think at any given moment to know thyself, as as the saying goes, um, 
it's so important, particularly in a world of turbulence and flux. And, mm. you know, even this week alone or in the last 24 hours, so many existential um, kind of cluster effects going on like you know the irish national health service has been hacked by a criminal gang which you know it makes for big headlines and all the rest but behind it are a lot of vulnerable people with um pregnancy scans and cancer treatments and um but but that's on top of news uh around india um bodies being buried without proper graves and um Gaza being obliterated and I I think like you know people are having to navigate the lack of social connection the start of reconnecting with the easing of lockdowns and so on and it's very easy to kind of get lost in some of that noise um but lost also in a way that it can become very depressing and can lead you to despair or else you choose to tune out and the tuning out thing is fine to a point for me but I also think it's really important to be engaged in the world and to not look away from reality and um, so to kind of know yourself and to connect with yourself and to know what your needs are as well to know when you do need to tune out um, it's just really important I suppose what I'm also pointing at is is the idea of finding your center as well and, mm. and staying grounded and and um i just find that it's so important and um, particularly then from the mental health perspective that i do think and there has been for a long long time a, a kind of what people call maybe an epidemic of i don't know anxiety depression you name it there's a full spectrum there and it's funny because it's often pitted against it. Like, it's like, oh, like, will you follow your head or follow your heart? And the idea that they they can be, that can be the same thing, you know, that to to, to listen to those sides of you, um, your heart does also, I've, I've seen the figurative heart, <laughs> you know, yeah. does kind of lead you into the things maybe you're, you're, you know maybe you're passionate about or, or maybe prioritizing you know family or loved ones or something like that um, yeah um well yeah to, truth be told my heart is a little bit heavy today so um and one of the reasons it's a little bit heavy is and it it is related to my second object which I can hold off on or not but uh I've been supporting somebody uh that is in a battle um, around their home and a vulture fund. And um, yeah, just a very distressing, stressful situation. And mm. for me, it, it, it's personal on a number of levels, but it's also relevant to me and, and many other people around the housing crisis and so on. So um, I've been kind of feeling that and I've also just been going gentle with myself today, whereas I do have a huge list of things to do that I have not been successfully achieving. And those kind of elements of guilt have been gnawing at me. But at the same time, the deeper heart level of awareness has been allowing me self-compassion and sort of guiding me to just take it easier today. It, it's such good advice, really, isn't it? Because so many times 
the go-to is to just beat yourself up for whatever reason. I'm, we were talking a little bit before I hit record because both of us are um, are freelance people and there can be a lot of um, guilt about what what are you not doing if you're, if you're you know, the, the jobs never end, I suppose. The jobs never end for most people, no matter what their, their, their profession, but it does, it, it is extra when you're um when especially when you're working in your home <laughs> and all the things you could be doing um and i think that idea as you said self compassion um I remember somebody once saying like if you if somebody spoke about a friend of yours the way you speak to yourself or the way you relate to yourself you'd probably be really angry at them because you know mm. we we're, we're heavy on, we're hard on ourselves and i think having that presence to go today is today and I'm I'm gonna just give myself a break especially if you're carrying or if you're supporting other people yeah yeah and I do think it's important to kind of feel what needs to be felt as well um Mm. because to repress or compartmentalize emotions which sometimes you need to do in order to just get the other thing done Um, But to sort of detach from them then can be a very um, possibly dangerous path to go down. And uh, like the emotions are going to find a home somewhere or or find seek expression or seek um, solace. And my sense is that there's a connection there to elements of addiction and, um, you know, I know that it's different for different people and their own journeys, but my sense of that would be that there could be elements there. Um, but, but really what I'm pointing to is, uh, I, I guess, kind of destructive, harmful behaviors that may not serve you or other people. Um, so to kind of sit with the emotion and tend to it, and it doesn't need to be kind of labored either. Like you don't need to kind of wallow and, and, you know, it's just, take it handy I suppose <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah and like I, I think there's something hard to in the world we're currently living in which hopefully if you listen to this podcast in the future the, the, these these lockdown times will be but a distant memory but um th- there's a lot of outlets social and 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 that that and and ways of I mean I know yourself you're a speaker you're a facilitator you you work with people a lot and to have that gone in person like I know we are still doing work online but that, there's an outlet that comes with being with humans that that does feed the soul and feeds your heart mm-hmm. and that and for that to be gone I, I like it's very hard to measure now yeah I, yeah, a hundred percent. So I, I have been thinking about that because I've actually, I've kind of navigated the pandemic fairly well and thankfully haven't had any major, I mean, I've lost a lot of work and, and like lost connection with people and, and all the rest, but on the grand scheme of things have, have done okay. And from health and wellbeing perspective and um, on the other hand, I've started to kind of reflect on, well, how has it adversely impacted on me? Because you're so sort of focused maybe on doing well in it that you don't actually allow the bit that maybe is corrosive or has taken a chip out of you. And 
like I did an event uh, on uh, a few days ago anyway, and it was it was for a human rights group and there were hundreds of people around the world involved. It's a group called Afri and um, I was kind of hosting it. And it was a huge privilege, uh, but at, th- at this point, it's second nature for me to go on a screen and uh, talk to hundreds of people and have the crack and, and get dialogues going and all the rest. But it's become so normal now that I don't think about it. And But I also have stopped thinking about doing it in, in physical setting as well. And that possibly is maybe dangerous or like, you know, or maybe it's just out of survival that I stopped kind of thinking about the other, mm. but it also kind of reminds you how new normals can become uh, s- cemented or, or, you know, you can kind of forget about the way things could be or used to be. Um, and yeah, so anyway, long rambly way of trying to get at the point that I wonder how that loss of connection has affected me. And I, I'm actually just in the process of trying to discern that at the moment. Um, yeah, and, and like, I don't know, I heard somebody locally use the term comfortably numb, that people are walking around comfortably numb. It was a kind of interesting choice of words. And, you know, a lot of people are doing okay at that level, but there's there seems to be, at least I felt, a lack of uh, stimulation, of joy, of crack, of fun, of spark, of randomness. And they're like essential ingredients to, you know, in a tech dystopian world, we can maybe have all our needs met materially and scientifically and healthcare wise and all the rest. But the, back to the heart and to the human soul, it's, you know, and we both connected in the past around narrative for like the human condition needs all those little random magic bits as well. And I think that's part of where the arts come in as well and music in particular. Yeah, no, it's it's very true. And I, I think I think that's a really good point that we might be having our needs met, but there's more to life than having your needs met. That's that's survival. That's not that's not living, you know. And and and, I, and like, yeah, there are people who are who are who this is really suiting them and uh, that. But at the same time, uh, historically, uh, yes, there have been pandemics and people have been forced to be apart, but they couldn't replace it with tech. So, um, this is a very unusual time where we kind of have managed to keep things going in a different way, but what, you know, and so what will the world look like? Uh, it may be in a year's time or something when we're kind of more comfortably, <laughs> not mean to jinx us, when we're more comfortably out of this and will we be more, more kind of happy to be less connected or will there be a swing to be, you know, stuck to each other's faces? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I tend to think it's not a binary in terms of all good or all bad. And the tech component, I think tech is what we make it and what we use it for as well. Mm. Uh, but it has brought a lot of benefits to a lot of people. And particularly uh, here I am in, you know, fairly remote rural Ireland and County Clare. And it's a very, you know, if you look at a map of the world, it's on the far edge of Western Europe. And yet... I can connect on any given day with people around the world and, you know, we can without much cost involved connect online and have conversations and make things happen. And 
that's amazing. It's mm. fantastic. And previously, you know, you had to kind of drive to Dublin for everything in Ireland because yeah. Dublin is the kind of big mother and, um, you know, it's an economic engine and so on. But you've been there as well, I'm sure. And like you have to go there for a half hour meeting and it takes you like three hours to get there and three hours back. And that's mm. six hours out of your day to get this three, you know, so hopefully then there are some meetings and some things that we can just do online that's okay but yeah I, I think maybe getting back to the ones that really do need to matter face to face and where you need that I think the sensory element is is kind of interesting as well can we sense each other through technology and actually sometimes I think we can and uh, or else I imagine we can, because when I was certainly doing book launches and events online, I would just treat them as if I was doing any other event. And I'd almost imagine the feeling of the, the people on the screen. There could be 50 people or 100. And I just imagine, like, uh, sometimes it depends on the tech setup. I just see my own face. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have to transcend your own face and go into this space that all these other faces are there. And something kind of happens to me where I'm suddenly can feel the room. Mm-hmm. And then because that's happened to me, I kind of feel like it creates a circle where they start to feel it. And then the feedback becomes, wow, I felt like I was at a night out and that was amazing. And all the rest, I'm not, I'm not saying all my events have been amazing or anything, but uh, they, they, uh, they certainly gave me a lot during the height of the pandemic um, whereby I just felt connected to people even though I wasn't in the traditional sense. Mm. Well, it's, it's, and I think it's very important that we there is a draw to misery in these times. So it is great to, to, to look at both sides and to look at the benefits as well. Mm. And um, we might move on to your, your second uh, object of choice. Yeah. Well, I suppose my second object I alluded to is, um, is a house or houses and uh, or homes and um, mm. all of those um yeah well i'm in one at the moment and i feel very grateful to be in one uh, I, I live in a very beautiful house and um feel very kind of blessed to have it and be c- very close to the sea and and to the wilds of, of county clare and it's it's an amazing place to be um it is a rented house and I guess it's a live conversation for me and my wife, as it is for hundreds of thousands of couples and, and individuals all around Ireland uh, and globally. Um, the whole question of shelter and specifically then security of shelter. And then that, I guess, that brings us into the realm of home ownership and accessibility, affordability, and all of that. So, um, as we know, this is now possibly one of the top two to three topics in Ireland these days Um, and one of the big reasons is that it has reached such an acute level of inadequacies putting it mildly Um, neglect is also putting it mildly Um, the word crisis is overused because we have so many of them Um, but if we want to kind of boil it all down to basics for me um, we talked about our needs being met but like on a on a maslow's hierarchy of needs like food and shelter are kind of where it's at Mm. and yeah okay not everyone does have the shelter from the point of view of actually being homeless and particularly those that are on the streets and those that are living in hostels and shelters uh, from day to day 
And we know that um, during a post Celtic Tiger crash, Ireland, where the economy actually did recover to uh, quite a significant level um, during that so-called recovery um, the proportion of people that became homeless continued to increase massively. And we also had numerous deaths of homeless people on our streets this year, despite very kind of high volumes of wealth still being generated and circulated. And for me, it's just morally, ethically and every other way wrong. And one of the problems is that we get tired of saying it and we get ground down and it becomes normalized in the way that I kind of suggested earlier that we have to be careful what gets normalized, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I think um, it doesn't need to be that way is, is really what I kind of feel like saying. Um, not just homelessness, but the fact that so many people are living with stress because of their housing situation and they, they would like their own home. They would like to know that they're safe where they are for another while, that they can renovate their house or do it up or paint the wall or not have to pay half their salary out every week or month. And it just doesn't need to be that way. So I suppose housing for me, uh, it's a fundamental tenet of what a functioning, healthy society should be, is to have a decent housing system and setup. And it is also, in a sense, a symptom, the crisis being a symptom of a very deeply broken political system in Ireland and mirrored elsewhere in the world, including in New Zealand, which we like to celebrate these days lots for many great reasons. And it deserves to be celebrated, but it also has similar problems. And at the heart of that is a an ideology around profiteering and using housing as another instrument for profiteering. And it's not a world that I uh, <laughs> want to see continue in that sense, because there's too much at stake, including ecology. You know, the very home that we live in is ecology. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of these things that um, when somebody says something radical, like um, what if property was just something you couldn't profit from? Do you know, like you can only own at most two houses and, and you need to live in one of them. And 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 obviously then you, you buildings, whatever office buildings, but that what what would our society look like if if housing was not a business yeah i mean like strip it all back again and say like what's the downside of somebody only being allowed to own two houses as you suggested it's like god love you <laughs> uh, yeah i mean I, I don't own two houses can i just stre- uh, stress well, that I just, is, it, yeah. it, it is part of the issue like because there are tens of thousands of holiday homes all around ireland and there's hundreds around me and I see it all winter when the lights are off and I will walk in that half the buildings that I see are unoccupied. And then on the other side of the street, uh, metaphorically speaking, um, are all these young people all around me in their 20s, 30s and 40s that can't find anywhere to live. They can't find anywhere even to rent securely because they get kicked out in the summer because people want their holiday homes back. So they profit from their residency during the nine months of the year they kicked them out for three months and you know like 
it's the whole free market thing and like freedoms are are fine like go and have lots of freedoms but you know the bottom line is that freedoms only work with responsibility and balancing and you can't have kind of one side of the, the house consuming all the resources and i know that it's way more complex than um you know a blanket ban scenario or saying one thing's all wrong or one thing's all right like like a lot of families for instance maybe saved up their whole lives and and inherited some wealth or whatever it might have been um who knows someone's journey to having that second home and i of course i know people with second homes they're not like bad people or anything <laughs> they're not all profiteering but when you have a society that is so imbalanced right as it is right now we do need to have this conversation and it gets a bit awkward because i think we know people that have second homes oh. uh, our third or fourth or fifth homes and then it, it gets into a whole nother conversation but i would like to have a conversation also around the number of TDs and particular ministers then and government TDs that um, have personal portfolios of housing that they as landlords rent out and how they have benefited personally from a housing crisis whilst being legislators on the very policies that have allowed huge swathes of people to suffer in that housing crisis. That, in essence, is wrong. It's very... It's it's a real conflict of interest to expect an entire government that are all landlords and ladies um, to legislate on behalf of tenants. Like it's like you can only see a blind a blind spot. I, I remember um, a, a while ago there was some comment that Leo Bradker, you know, had one of the lowest portfolios. Uh, he only had like one and a half million, mainly because he's young rather than because he's not like, it, it, it's for the stage of his career he's at, he only has X amount of properties, one and a half million, by the way, there's no only in that sentence. But I suppose when you're talking about something as you are, this, this, oh, this horrendous situation we're living in, and then you know, you kind of feel like if you were an alien looking down at Ireland, like they have this problem, but like the people who are all making the laws all have loads of property and are all getting a lot of income from that. How how can those people legislate for someone who has no portfolio or if they did have anything, it would be a fraction of that kind of money. You know, and I think it's that kind of simple reflection is, is really what's lacking. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know what to, I, I remember reading previous reports around the Registrar of Interests. I think it, it worked out it's something that on average, a quarter of the doll uh, are TDs. Um, but when you bring it back to Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael, I think it was something like a third. Um, and it might have been more a cabinet level. Um, you know, at an individual level, I don't think, you know, they're not all bad, scrupulous landlords. I don't, I don't think the world is that black and white, you know, and I'm actually not even sure that Leo Fradker has a portfolio like that might have been just his own personal house. And I don't it could, know. It could have been like what I'm saying is I, I, I don't if any fact checker comes after me, no bother. But I remember it was over a million and whatever it was, the comment was he only the comment yeah, was yeah, only yeah, yeah. that so was it's, it's not, that was what was more really, interesting. 
yeah it's not about him per se no no not at all but i think what that some of that what that speaks to is what is deemed to be almost again normal expected mm. and accepted and again i'm not so naive to think like everyone should be banned from like i think it's maybe possibly a step too far to stop like tds are humans they have rights and Absolutely. it shouldn't be but but at this level of crisis it has to be scrutinized and like we've had at least 10 years of promises and i've lived through them and listened to them and read them and attended meetings about them and i've now gone i I don't believe your promises anymore categorically just don't there comes a point where you're in an abusive relationship and you're like I actually don't believe you anymore you've told me that many many times and um I feel like the electorate is stuck in that abusive relationship in a lot of ways particularly also with the health service um and some of the thinking that has compounded this I think is reflected also in the health service whereby we have a two-tier system and some people are also invested into private medicine, private hospitals, and then when they leave their um, political careers, uh, Mary Harney being one, going on to sit on boards of pharmaceutical, I think she's she's certainly involved in nursing home industry, maybe not pharmaceutical, there are others. Um, so maybe the, the thing being the corporatization of politics being an overarching theme rather than it just being about any one individual. And Absolutely. That, underpinning that is is a profiteering ideology and belief system that um yeah sure go make loads of money have have buy yourself loads of nice clothes and have tons of holidays every year but your people are suffering around you and that is not acceptable leadership in the country that we espouse to be and say we are and when i've personally when i was on the council of state i spent seven years attending the 1916 commemoration outside the gpo and seeing politicians from all parties honor the the legacy and the sentiment and the proclamation and then the next day go and vote and otherwise so we're either going to live those values or we're not it's it's so odd as well when you think of our history the recent recent history of being under landlords as in like under under non-irish based landlords and it just how I don't know it's a bit of a cycle almost do you know and I mean I know it's not I know it's totally different we're not surfs on, on land or anything but well I don't know for the kind of it, there there, <laughs> there are some similarities you know mm. like it's very easy to just blame the Brits and blame <laughs> blame the Catholic Church um, but we there's no shortage of people of our own you know persuasion class religion color whatever that are exploiting their own neighbors and we just have to look in the mirror in that regard. But I do think a lot of this goes back hundreds of years to like landowners and the landless. And we're kind of repeating a lot of that in, in essence. And particularly now generationally, there's maybe our parents' generation, it wasn't as pronounced. Um, but I do think the younger generation are now facing, and it's, it's well-documented, um, their kind of wealth base and their their potentiality to to grow and to have homes and raise families um, is being compromised because of somebody hoovering up too much of the pie. Mm. And it's kind of gets, 
it gets to be a bit straightforward at one level. And then you say, well, the market was going to equalize it. And then, well, it, it had its chance. It didn't do it. The market actually added fuel to the fire. It's very simple what needs to happen. It's That's also been well documented by Peter McVeary and numerous other policy advocates. Um, so they don't want to do it for some either vested interest or as Peter McVeary says, an ideological interest that they're bought into the idea that you can't interfere with the market, but yet they're interfering with the market all the time. So um, then this brings back the question to us as citizens, as voters, as individuals, as tenants, mm-hmm. how do we then respond? And sometimes I think there's a little bit of an element of shame that uh, can prevent some of the resolution occurring, which is the idea that has also been part of the problem whereby if you haven't got this sorted, you're a bit of a failure. And I think that can become very insidious and lead one to feeling a degree of shame, whereby you have a bunch of people that feel they should be sorted at this stage in their life. And they just obviously clearly aren't up to up to it. And that idea has been championed by certain politicians. So again, to know thyself and know, well, no, okay, maybe there's some personal responsibility here and there. I made some bad choices or I made different choices. Um, and, and this is also very relevant to those of us that are connected to the arts and culture as well, because again, you know, you had during the pandemic, a lot of musicians and other arts professionals losing their livelihood and um, Heather Humphreys, uh, Minister for Social Protection, who, who I know, who's actually, you know, she's a, we're back to this kind of refrain of she's a lovely woman and all the rest, but um, she suggested that they just go and retrain, you know, but like, <laughs> come on. Yeah, there, there was a similar rhetoric in, in, in Britain. Actually, there was an ad campaign of a, I saw a picture of a young girl in a ballet dress. Or no, it wasn't. It was a dancer oh, yeah. saying, you know, she could be a, a, a she could be a computer technician and she doesn't she know too it. couldn't work on a computer. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and so so this is fine. And at a at a logical, literal, rational level, it makes complete sense. Like IT technology, it's advancing at such a pace. It needs more people. It's an insatiable beast. There's money to be made. Go make the money. But where does that leave us as a species then um, if we're all just working with X's and O's and programming and so on? And it could, it needs to happen. There's loads of benefits. As I said, I celebrate the power of technology every day. Um, But we also need to tend to the soul, to the spark, to the magic, to the connection, to the human elements. We need doctors. We need teachers. We need carers. We need social workers. We need musicians. We need fiddlers. We need tin whistle players, guitarists, poets, writers, the whole spectrum. That's what makes life and humanity and all the beautiful diversity within it. Oh, beautifully put. Um, Absolutely. Um, So I was wondering then, are we are we ready to move on to your third thing? <laughs> Good segue, Anne, because uh, you actually, well, you don't, the listeners won't know that, you, or maybe they don't, do know, but um, you don't know what my next thing is, but you actually did team me up nicely for it there. Okay. Oh, yeah, and I actually have it sitting beside me. Um, so I'm gonna, I'll, 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 I'll make a noise with it first. Um, okay. Uh, okay. Oh, a baron. So uh, yeah, that's obviously well. Maybe it's not so obvious, but it's a baron, and um, the object's not necessarily being the baron, but just 
about being music in general. And also beside me, I have my wife's new CD, which I will never get tired of promoting because I also wear a managerial hat. Oh, promote <laughs> it, please. Yeah, please yeah, do. Yes, particularly, uh, it only came out three weeks ago. So I take every opportunity to promote it. But really, I'm celebrating music in general as well and, and art and um, what it does for, for humans. And yeah, so... Um, yeah, what is my object? It's music. <laughs> but uh, OK, I'll be more specific and go into her album. Yeah, I've been a part of her album creation process in from the wings, really. Um, she's the musician, she's the artist. And she made this beautiful collection of 11 original songs. And from conception to launch took roughly 10 years. And at the very start of the conception was um, her not necessarily even knowing that she could write songs and mm. then a whole kind of a whole sort of how would you say um magical mystery tour of exploration occurring starting with her friend Fiona who now is deceased um but whose spirit lives very strongly in the album and around the album her friend Fiona asking her would she chance writing a song for a screenplay that she was writing and and then my wife, Susan Quirk is her name, um, starting to write songs and then they just started coming and coming and coming. And then all this magic started flowing and then meeting um, an amazing man, Colm Quirney and him saying, hey, why don't we just record an album? And then he started helping assemble a band and dream team of musicians. And yeah, and then so just me kind of observing and also championing and, and seeing um I hope she doesn't mind me saying, but she said it on record herself. And um, there have been times where maybe her confidence wasn't what it, it could have been. Mm -hmm. And I think like we see that all the time with people we know and love where you can see their light and they, they necessarily can't. And whether that's a product of education systems or perceived notions of what music should sound like or what success should look like. But sometimes we need to kind of push her cheer the other person on so i'm not necessarily trying to claim the virtue on this one but um i'm just kind of maybe trying to explain for me it's it's been a great joy to see her f literally find her voice and and then record it and share it and then launch it and then to be involved in the in the kind of even just the song sequencing and so on. And like, obviously, you know way more about this than me at this point. Um, having been an, a veteran of the music industry. Um, yeah, so it's been amazing just launching the album and then promoting and then seeing her doing like national media interviews. And just like seconds before this interview started, uh, we got an email with a review in Hot Press magazine just came out. And I was like, oh, is that going to be any good? And yes, it is good. So um yeah, and then, you know, trying to navigate that whole realm of does any of that matter as well? Like that that it becomes this thing where the art is the art, but people's reaction to the art being a different experience and that maybe should belong with them and not you. And you have to kind of separate yourself from that, as you know. And um, then there's always this kind of, um, push to define success well did it sell a lot or was it streamed many times and and yes it has actually sold quite a bit in cd form and it's been streamed plenty and it's got radio play so it, it's ticked a lot of those boxes but what's interesting is 
if you go too far down that road, it's you're always going to actually fail in your pursuit of success to a degree because this you're never going to sell enough and, and you're never going to get enough. There's always going to be someone ahead of you. And like, at what point is enough enough? So you have to maybe find your point of knowing what it is. Why are you doing it? I suppose. And what is it giving you and what are you, why, you know, so, so I'm kind of need to be careful because this is not for me to say, this is for Susan to speak about. And she has um, spoken about it. Um, but I think it brings us back to the first point around know thyself again. So as long as you're steady in that um, and you don't get consumed by what industry is or what reaction is or, um, and I had a bit of this with my book and I didn't navigate it as gracefully as Susan has navigated her launch. Like I was just like a, a kind of a rampant maniac <laughs> um, trying to get my book out during a pandemic and going, ah! uh, <laughs> so, but you know, typically I'm not as graceful as her. So, <laughs> well, no, but it, it's, it's, it's very interesting as well. Your relationship with, with the music, because you know, she's your wife and obviously she creates this, but you're, are, are there many, there is there, there is a song about you in there, isn't there? Or <laughs> a few. Ah, uh, there's a few. There's, um, <laughs> there's a rock, there's two rock and roll kind of indie tr- numbers on the album. One of them is called I Like The Way and it's actually about our marriage and mm-hmm. um, it kind of references some of our vows in the lyrics and, okay. um, the uh, one of the lines is uh, no shackles bind us. We are free together. And that was actually part of our vows that um, I think partially it was a response, at least for me, to this notion that um, you often heard. Well, uh, certainly a lot of lads would hear it said to them that uh, getting married is a ball and chain. Mm-hmm. You don't hear it as much these days, thank God. But you might hear it amongst an old bitter old fraternity um, or the ball and chain, you know, well, mm-hmm. like who forced you into it like and and like you're such a miserable victim and um but also then maybe marriages could become prisons both for a woman or or a man in that in you know it's it's not black and white in that regard um and so it's very important to have intentionality around to maintain one's independence and freedom within the union and unity of uh relationship as well and obviously that's a ever ongoing piece of work that you know it goes on and on and some days you maybe are better at it than others um but it's good to kind of that's what we signed up for you do your thing I'll do my thing but we'll still do our own we'll we'll support each other to do that and we're committed to that and there probably is there's another at least one other song I like it might be in contention though because our uh, disputed rather there's one about like um certainly like a bout of depression or um somebody going through a very very hard time and then it's called treasure scattered and the ship crashing to the bottom of the ocean and all this treasure scatters out of the ship but it being a kind of image of of how hard times and sometimes the crash in life can reveal some of the gold that needs to come out um, so I, I'll take cl- credit for that, <laughs> but it may not be about me, but I've certainly been through some of those miserable times and Susan certainly observed them. God love her. 
I, I do think it's a very interesting thing that for for partners of artists um, who are in their work, no, no matter no matter what. Um, I was recently working on a a piece of theatre with a friend, and you know her husband is woven in and out of it, the text, and I have a show, and my it, my, my wife uh, is depicted in it, and there's just this funny thing of. Of course, you're you're around this person so much. Of course, they're going to be in the work. But then it's what is it like to be the person who's in the work but didn't make it? Ah, yeah, I don't. I mean, I just. Uh, yeah, I think it's cool. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm like, I, it's like a lovely honor, but I, I don't feel massive about it one way or the other, to be honest. I mean, I don't I, like it's lovely and it's her work it's not about me really like it's you know at that point it's separated um but but what um maybe is relevant in another way is uh we made a music video together which i think you may have seen um yeah yeah go on go yeah, on explain it's it's actually for that i like the way a song and we just recorded it with mobile phones of us acting acting the goat basically and hugging each other and me flying around on a skateboard and um just dance like doing silly dances and we just compiled all this footage of us having the crack and at one point towards the end of deciding to put it out or not um we were like do we really want to do this to ourselves because you know arguably it's cheesy you know it's it's intentionally shamefully cheesy and sometimes there's a bit of a um a veneer around public image where people don't want to be seen to be cheesy or whatever and um, but it's important to kind of laugh at yourself and with yourself as well um and we think it's the best thing ever it did not go viral but you know maybe someday it doesn't matter either we still think it's the best thing ever well rory i did see it and i didn't know you at the time and i didn't know susan so it, it came my way you know but obviously it doesn't mean it's viral but it got beyond this is before we met you crossed the claire limerick border <laughs> on the internet yeah so that's that's something <laughs> um oh listen that is um that that those three very different very different things and a very lovely a lovely journey to to that you took us on there um and thank you for being on on the podcast um obviously you are a man of of many talents and you have i would like to give you a moment now to promote all, like anything you'd like to where people can find you online where people can get your book and 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 so forth and your podcast as well if you step outside and look to the north on a full moon and howl i will appear you'll find me in the <laughs> sky no uh you know all the usual crack uh twitter and what's the what's the other one no tiktok no i'm not on tiktok are you on tiktok no i'm not <laughs> no uh i don't know what instagram twitter facebook youtube podcast oh yeah the love and courage podcast and i have another side project on that called the creative souls of claire podcast oh and yeah. that can be that can be found on all things all the usual platforms the yeah yeah all the usual Jobbies. And your book and your book uh, Hitching for Hope is available in in all good bookstores. Book yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Well, for particularly for Limerick listeners, um O'Mahony's have been very supportive. It's certainly in O'Mahony's and definitely always trying to 
promote the independent bookshops, um, but it is in most bookshops and online in the various online stores. And I have a few copies myself that I sell sometimes. Um, so it, and it's an ebook as well and audiobook and it's hitchingforhope.com. Oh, it's on Audible. It's on Audible now, is it? Or it on- is, but there's another story behind that. Basically, I, I it's not me. It's it's another it's an actor. <laughs> it actually is an actor doing it uh, for a ver- for a few reasons. One of them being that I was completely burnt out when it came time to do it. I was burnt out from writing the book and I just didn't have it in me. That's the long version or the short version. Well, uh, yes, I, I remember actually probably one of the last times I saw you in person, I, uh, I was asking you about about that, about whether you'd read it yourself. So it's on Audible. It's on it's hitching for hope. And uh, do find it's a great read. It's a great, I imagine, a great listen as well. And Rory, it has been wonderful to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you, Anne. You're a great conversationalist, interviewer, listener, human being, musician, creative spark soul brilliant person thank you oh well i just might not edit that out <laughs> don't edit it just thanks, put it on a loop <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful thanks rory you've been listening to three things that matter with me Anne blake a limerick post podcast produced by eric fitzgerald theme tune is composed by myself and performed and recorded by my lovely brother david blake You can follow Limerick Post on Twitter at Limerick Post. If you enjoyed the podcast, please let others know and rate it on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at AnneBlake78, on Instagram at AnneBlakePlay, and the podcast on the hashtag 3ThingsTM.